It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Dr. Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution sponsored by Fido Mobile. Stay tuned as we talk Canadian news and Black issues on a regular basis. And if you support our work to keep you informed, please subscribe. On this week's episode, we are joined by Debbie Owusu Etria to discuss some of the top headlines from the week of June 12th, including Minister Freeland's $8.9 billion plan to help with inflation, sort of. Home sales down 9% since April across Canada, but don't expect lower prices in Toronto. Toronto Police released new race-based data that reveals discrepancies in policing. A few members of the Tampa Bay Rays refused to wear pride-themed uniforms. And plenty more. Debbie is an award-winning Black feminist with over eight years of local and international advocacy experience in a variety of roles, ranging from programming and counseling to policy analysis and project management. She became the new executive director at the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity in July 2020. The Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity is a non-profit organization based in Ottawa that intersectionally promotes diversity in gender identity, gender expression, and romantic and or sexual orientation in all its forms on a national level through services in the areas of education, health, and advocacy. As quite the political herself, Debbie has a BA in Women and Gender Studies and an MA in International Development Policy from the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, both from Carleton. Debbie is the go-to expert on issues of Canadian policy and the 2S LGBTQ plus community. She's also a Ghanaian Canadian from Brampton, so really understands, lives, eats, and breathes intersectionality. Debbie has had the pleasure of bridging her passion for social justice with international development at Oxfam Canada and Global Affairs Canada. Additionally, through volunteering and leading feminist initiatives with organizations like the Ottawa Dyke March, Harmony House Women's Shelter, and Planned Parenthood Ottawa. When she isn't yelling into a microphone at protests and organizing events, Debbie is probably on a field somewhere playing rugby or baking a cake or making earrings. No, Debbie? You make earrings still. I still do. (laughs) Debbie, welcome. We are so excited to have you here today. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you so much for having me both and happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy Pride indeed. Well, we love to have you here. We love the celebration feeling in the air. And if you're ready, we can get started with our first story of the day. How does that sound? Let's do it. To kick off our politics segment, Minister Freeland's $8.9 billion plan to help with inflation. Sort of. With the cost of living being too damn high due to a spike in prices for essentials like food, gas, and housing, inflation is undoubtedly the number one issue for governments right now. In fact, opposition parties have been hammering the feds about inflation, which hit a three-decade high of 6.8% in April. It'll 
probably go higher too. So this week, perhaps in response to a little criticism that Canada wasn't responding to the crisis, Finance Minister Christopher Freeland outlined the government's plan to tackle the problem in a speech to the Empire Club. Though the money is technically already accounted for in both the April and prior budgets, some of the money hasn't begun to flow yet. Freeland's outline was a tightrope walk between addressing fiscal hawks who want less spending because it pushes prices up or when there's too much demand on one hand, and supporting people who can't manage sustained higher prices due to inflation on the other. The measures total $8.9 billion, as I've mentioned before, and are meant to support parents with youths, seniors, the working poor, and renters. Support for parents manifests in the Early Learning Child Care Plan with money already flowing to moms and dads today. Senior support manifests as a 10% increase to OAS for those over 75, also already flowing. The working poor are supported by an increase to the Canada Workers' Benefit, which provides up to $1,395 for individuals making under about $23,000 a year, and lesser amounts for those with incomes up to just over $32,000 a year. There's a bit more for families making just over $42,000 a year as well. And renters struggling with accommodations get a one-time $500 bump through the Canada Housing Benefit, though details of how that will flow are unclear as per the budget. Freeland also said numerous times that if our economic situation worsens, the government would consider more action. But they can probably do more even right now, and here's what I mean. If we do a comparison to what other developed countries are doing, Canada looks a little, I don't know, off. To start with the U.S., while Canada is pushing to develop more oil in concert with allies to the tune of an extra 300,000 barrels per day by year's end, President Joe Biden has temporarily released 1 million extra barrels of oil from strategic reserves and will do so for six months with the intent to lower oil prices. If we jump to Europe, looking at Germany, their coalition government announced a 16 billion euro or 21.5 billion dollar inflation relief package in March, inclusive of a gas tax cut for three months by around 30 euro cents per liter. And just for the record, gas taxes in Germany or taxes on gas, I should say, amount to about 48%. Then there's the UK. This is interesting. The UK's conservative government introduced what's called a windfall tax on energy company profits, similar to what our NDP's Jagmeet Singh is proposing. At the end of May in the UK, energy companies started paying an extra 25% on earnings, although there are exemptions to encourage investment. The UK government plans to use this money, so all households will receive a discount on their energy bills this year, totaling about 700 pounds or just over $1,100 Canadian. And all low-income people and retirees will get a one-time check of about 650 pounds or just over 1,000 Canadian. Interesting, right? Even in Canada, the idea of raising taxes on profits wouldn't be unprecedented. The Liberals already won an election on raising taxes on excess banking and insurance profits and introduced the measures in April's budget. This included a 1.5% bump to the corporate income tax on profits over 100 mil, plus a one-time tax of 15% on bank and insurance company income above $1 billion for 2021. Those taxes will raise $6.1 billion over five years, with the 1.5% tax on banking and life insurance groups expected to raise $445 million ongoing. So Jagmeet wants to see that same tax increase 
on big box stores that also made a killing throughout the pandemic. Speaking on the issue, he said, quote, it's the responsibility of government to say, if you're making excess profits off the backs of people in a difficult time, when people can't afford to eat, then you have to start paying your fair share, end quote. And I don't know anybody who disagree with that. But Ottawa is pushing fiscal restraint, for the record. The Bank of Canada, whose job it is to actually manage inflation, has begun aggressively raising interest rates to get prices under control. As we discussed, recently, Canada's interest rate was raised another half percent to 1.5%, and the bank says it has no problem increasing interest rates higher, even if it causes a recession. So what do we think? Considering the concern that more spending would be counterproductive to fighting inflation, as some say, is this enough? Great question. Mm. And I'm definitely going to be speaking from the perspective of, you know, someone who works really closely with marginalized communities, of course, Mm -hmm. Um, because we all know, especially all three of us, uh, the economy doesn't impact everybody the same. We know that. Um, And so for two LGBTQ people in particular, and especially those within the community who are Black, Indigenous, and folks of color, Mm-hmm. When it comes to experiencing a very harsh capitalist economy, um, we're more likely to see the negative effects of a recession. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be the first ones laid off. We're going to be the first ones to have to decide whether or not we are, you know, picking a meal versus paying rent. Mm-hmm. We are the first ones who have to navigate, um, you know, challenges around even just physical safety, um, because we know on an intimate level, and we see this in the gender justice sector, which I have come from and still continue to do work, um, what happens when people get laid off, and we saw this in the pandemic, and violence increasing in, in both the private sphere, but also in the public sphere. And so when I think about this, I see a federal government who wants to protect profits as much as possible. Mm. I see a federal government that has let, you know, those in the most powerful seek profits throughout the pandemic and continue to want to protect them going into what is a very um, unstable possible economic situation for the country. And for me, I'm very cognizant of like, are we actually thinking about what this is going to mean for the most marginalized people in Canada? And this is including the 2SLGBTQ community and those of us who aren't in it. Um, it's scary to kind of be thinking about this on top of what's happening on the social side. Um, mm. There's a lot of rhetoric that's going on that's very scary where marginalized people are continuing to be used as scapegoats. Um, mm. I'm here in Ottawa, as you folks are aware, and February was a fun time. Oh, yeah. Convoy, great. Um, not too far from where I live. Oh. And we saw some of that rhetoric where, you know, people were scapegoated. Or they use the government to say that the government's making certain decisions on behalf of certain communities over others. So Mm -hmm. those small instances where our liberal government may, you know, dedicate certain funding to LGBTQ projects, Mm -hmm. you can see how the rhetoric gets spinned as this is what we're wasting our money on when we could be doing X. These aren't priorities. mm -hmm, Exactly. (laughs) And then what ends up happening is. You know, because everyone forgets how civics civics course was back in high school. No one remembers how levels of governments work. And so we direct. <laughs> we la- we direct no, but it's our- facts, though. It's facts. <laughs> um, actually, my first viral tweet on Twitter was literally about um, 
civics course being 0.5 credit, a mistake. Yeah. That was a mistake. Huge mistake. <laughs> One of the bades um, of my existence. Anyway, go on. But uh, yeah, it's it's marginalized folks who end up getting the the flack and are targeted with a certain level of lateral violence, which is scary. So yeah. you're, tr- you know, we're out here trying to survive, literally paying bills, trying to make it yeah. on top of making sure that our lives are not being threatened. So these two things are happening at the same time here in Canada. And we're seeing some of that rhetoric in the States kind of amplified even more. And so for me, I'm really, really, I have questions for Mm -hmm. our decision makers on how are they best equipped to ensure that these two things that are happening at the same time Mm -hmm. are addressed in the best way possible. And that profit, and I know that Canada wants to maintain its position in the global sphere, Mm-hmm. profit isn't the first thing that's like directing our policy decisions. We're actually thinking about what does it mean for Canadian citizens and residents to actually be protected um, and safe. Yep, yep. Good points. Good points. Patience? I have to agree because I I watched, uh, I was, I'm a TikTok girl now. So I was on TikTok <laughs> and uh, there's a couple of folks on there who are talking about uh, how Loblaw, their profits are just increasing with every kind of devastating event that happens to the country. Like they just keep making more and more money. And I, I mean, profits, I don't mean revenue, right? The The problem that I see with Freeland's plan is that it, it, it actually will, again, like, like you had, you both have mentioned, it pushes for more spending without kind of removing some of the things that are barriers in the first place. So it's just, I don't know, like, Helping to to make companies like Loblaw, and I just heard something this morning about Embridge is also it's kind of taking advantage of everybody. Embridge, imagine like the gas provider. Anyway, uh, so we're 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 getting more money to pour into these these companies that are already making more money than they should, and we're also contributing to inflation by continuing to pour government dollars into programs like this to a certain extent. Yeah, the I, I'm not I'm not sold that demand side issues are as big a deal as the media is making it out to be. I'm not sold on the fact that if we help people who need help right now, particularly those, you know, okay, so uh, different people, whether it's governments or otherwise, they're saying that well, look, the, the stress tests and things of that nature to help people through challenging times, help homeowner, homeowners through challenging times. They're in place for a reason. We shouldn't see, you know, many, if at all, uh, you know, foreclosures through a possible recession. I certainly hope so. But if there are, are we really going to say that we're not going to be assisting people through that? I mean, I, I just, I, I can't fathom that. I, I think we need to have a, a more thoughtful pers- a discussion about it. So that's my overall perspective. Fundamentally, you know, Debbie, I, I hear you when you're saying that we're we're protecting corporate profits and uh, we need to do a little less of that. I think that people in government might say that there's a, there's an interest in balancing the equation and and maybe quite frankly not pissing off people who are further on the right as this liberal government has been doing pretty much yeah. since inception, right? Um, so yeah, it's it's a it. I mean, I kind of talked about it. It really is a kind of a tight rope walk. Jumping to the Canadian economy, home sales down nine percent since last month and twenty percent year over year across Canada. But don't expect lower prices in Toronto. 
Higher interest rates are continuing to do their thing and slow housing activity with the hope of slowing inflation. According to CREA, the Canadian Real Estate Association, home sales dropped 22% year-over-year in May and almost 9% from April. On a year-over-year and non-seasonally adjusted basis, May sales were 53,720, down from 68,598 last year. In fact, sales in May, they looked a lot like they did back in the second half of 2019 before the pandemic. Sales were down in three quarters of all local markets, including the GTA and Ottawa too. Though sales are set to continue to slow though, apparently prices won't be dropping anytime soon, which is the whole point of increasing interest rates, right? Korea is forecasting that home prices will rise 10.8% year over year to an average of $762,000 for this year. The largest gains will come from Atlantic Canada, our province, and of course, Quebec. Then average home prices will rise a further 3.1% next year. If we drill down into Toronto, according to Treb, Toronto's average home price was $1.21 million in May. Not too bad, right? Pretty good pricing. Uh, while this is a drop of 3% from April, it's still an increase year-over-year year, 9%, as I've said before. Regions around the Golden Horseshoe, though, like Durham, will see significant price drops. In fact, Desjardins expects that Ontario prices outside Toronto could drop as much as 18%. Whoa. 18%. Wow. Anybody trying to pick up a second property? first? Property? Yeah, fam. 18%. <laughs> Let's go! Honestly. Wow. Debbie, how, how are uh, members of your community navigating the real estate market right now? Have you been having specific conversations on that issue? Oh, this is a really, really good question. Mm. And it all depends on who within the community you're talking to. Mm. I, I'm here in Ottawa, right? And so if you wanted to like imagine the stereotypical like queer person in this city mm -hmm. think like pete Buttigieg in in the states mayor pete so really smart it's really all working for the government Corporate. okay yeah uh -huh. white twinks yeah um, so, that, <laughs> so, so that's like the stereotypical image people have of like queer people in this city right okay. and uh -huh. so relatively speaking if you are working for the federal government as a public servant you're all right you know what i mean you're mm. all right especially if you're a certain age group but if you really want to put that like intersectional lens and really do a deep dive that's beyond the like stereotypical like gay marriage image of like queer and trans folks, mm -hmm. um, we're looking at some people who can't even afford to pay rent. That's right. what we're dealing with. We're dealing with uh, young folks in particular, and I'm thinking of young trans youth in particular, who mm -hmm. are more likely to make up our youth homeless population from coast to coast to coast. A lot of queer and trans folks can't even fathom the idea of affording a home. And I'm a black cisgender queer woman mm -hmm. who lives in, a, in an apartment with someone else. Mm -hmm. And compared to our most marginalized, you know, I'm doing okay, but I don't think I'm going to be able to afford a home, not in this city, not anytime mm -hmm. soon. And so the conversation of housing comes up a lot. And, you know, looking at what Canada's doing on its housing plan, wanting to make sure it's you know, keeping in mind the 2 LGBTQ component to it yeah. and really asking the question of what 
are we doing subsidy wise to allow people to just afford housing to begin with? Um, that is something that really is the conversation piece we're having because many of the LGBTQ organizations who do service provision frontline, they're dealing with a lot of houseless young queer and trans folks. Mm. And that tends to dominate the conversation for sure. So I, I know that there is a focus, for example, um, with housing initiatives, even the rapid housing initiative, um, to ensure that there is access for women, particularly women fleeing violent situations, when women uh, going through um, turbulent times, perhaps with you know drug use, etc. And I also know, uh, to juxtapose that to another side of, of issues, I also know that there is a program specific for Indigenous people with regards to housing. There's a there's a Black Stream, and all of these are from the federal government uh, with regards to housing. Because of my area of of focus or maybe lack of focus, I am not sure of what is there for uh, uh, you know two S LGBTQ uh, members. But based on what I just mentioned, there certainly could be a stream there too, right? One hundred percent. And this is a policy piece that I've been trying to get more people to talk about, mm-hmm. especially when you look at it from the perspective of gender based violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to be the person who has to, you know, in feminist spaces as a queer person, kind of really shift our minds away from the archetype we've been taught to think about who is a victim of gender-based violence. And that archetype is the wife, you know, who's beaten by her husband. And I will say, I'll give credit to where credit is due in the gender-based violence um, movement. When that archetype was imagined, because it had truth to it back in the 70s, -hmm. it was for the storytelling to shift public policy, right? We needed to have, uh, especially at the time when the government and when um, institutions like policing said, gender-based violence, not our issue, that's a Mm -hmm. private situation. We needed that archetype to shift the conversation that like, no, it actually impacts everyone. The personal is political. And that's why we have women's shelters to begin with today. Mm -hmm. Where the situation comes to dealing with two LGBTQ people, you know, art, our experiences of discrimination are gender-based violence too. It is has everything to do with the fact that as in our existence and being who we are and loving who we love and, and having sex with who we do or not having sex with certain people, it has everything to do with the fact that we are performing our gender in a way that is not the norm. Mm-hmm. And so the response that we deal with, whether it's homophobic violence, transphobic violence, bullying, et cetera, that's gender-based. It has everything to do with our gender. And so where I think there is an opportunity policy-wise, I think of you know Canada's national strategy on gender-based violence and the funding that's been committed to provinces specifically for shelter and, ho- and, and housing, mm-hmm. the LGBTQ organizations are not in the conversation. And I'm like, they need to be. Because, I find that very interesting considering right? certain people in cabinet even. Right? Yeah. And and I've been like, it has to be, especially at the provincial level, and we're dealing with a significant amount of conservative ones, including in this province. Mm. If we don't do that, we're going to continue to see the issue that we have been seeing for decades, where queer and trans people, because of the violence they deal with in women's shelters, there is a significant amount of very transphobic women's shelters in yeah. this in this country yes. and the history and that mistrust prevents us from accessing those services 
And then our own organizations that have been having to, you know, it's not in our mandate and we don't have the coins to do it, but we've been doing it anyway, where we're acting like crisis shelters. They don't have the capacity or the funding to be able to sustain that type of programming to help queer and trans folks who are fleeing violence. And so my, my policy wish is that, that, that money, that commitment, these, these subsidies that would go to women, for example, and I'm saying women as red, red as cisgender heterosexual, if we're going to look at gender-based violence from a systemic level, then th- those subsidies also have to go to, to us LGBTQ people. And we need to really think about how we are considering that gender-based violence is a very nuanced thing and it impacts the housing situations of some of the most marginalized people in our community who are queer and trans. Hey, what's good, everyone? I don't know about you, but I'm loving this conversation with Debbie Owusu-Achia, Executive Director of the Canadian Center for Gender and Sexual Diversity. Stay tuned for part two, where Patience leads the way on Blackity Black Black and World News as we incorporate LGBTQ issues into this episode for Pride Month. As always, thanks for listening. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 